Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, it's our custom to take time to have silent prayer just to make sure that we are in fellowship with God. Scripture teaches that once we trust in Christ as our Savior, we are instantly uh, saved. We are uh, justified. We're regenerated. We are also adopted into His royal family. But just like any child, we can be disobedient. We can sin, and when we sin, that fellowship is broken, though it does not harm or hurt or cause us to lose salvation. Uh, recovery is simply by admission of our sin to God. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from not just those sins, but all sins, all unrighteousness. And so that we recover fellowship with God, the ongoing sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit continues. It's, in some passages, it's referred to as the as being filled by means of the Spirit. In other passages, it's referred to as walking by the Spirit. In other passages, walking in the light as He is in the light. Now, all of these relate to the same idea as abiding in Christ in John chapter 15. It is important for the believer to be in that right relationship with God as that is how the Spirit, or when the Spirit works to uh, mature us and to move us along the path of spiritual growth. So let's bow our heads to, together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Father, we are grateful that we have such a complete salvation planned for in eternity past, implemented by our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and proclaimed through your word and through members of the body of Christ throughout this church age. Father, this church stands as a testimony of your grace, as, a, as an ambassador for the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And Father, salvation begins with justification when we trust in Christ as our Savior but it continues progressively in terms of our ongoing spiritual growth, spiritual life. And this is why we study your word. The Apostle Peter tells us that we are to desire, as a mandate, we are commanded to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby, that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come together in the highest form of worship to study you, your word, to learn about you, to learn how you think, that we may that our thinking may reflect your thinking and that we may orient not only to your word and to your grace, but orient to the reality as you have defined it. And we do this for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. We've been studying in the book of Revelation about worship. The English word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship related to the concept of being worthy. And in our study of Revelation 4 and 5, when we focus on the uh, throne of God and this incredible scene where the uh, four living creatures and the 24 elders and all of the angels, myriads upon myriads, are gathered around the throne of God 
And the angels are, and the 24 elders are looking for one who is qualified to take the scroll from the hand of God the Father on the throne, the scroll that in its unfolding will bring the final judgments upon the earth in the period known as the Great Tribulation. They are seeking for one who is worthy, one who is qualified to take the scroll. And so when the Lamb of God appears to take the scroll, the 24 elders and the four living creatures break forth in a hymn of praise singing, Worthy is the Lamb. And that is the idea of worship. It is because Jesus Christ is worthy to be praised. The Father is worthy to be praised as we see in Revelation 4 because He is the Creator. And so that has formed the backdrop for our current sub-series in Revelation on, on worship. And what we have done so far in this series is to look at the basic words for worship in both the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament. Two ideas stand out, submission and service. We are to submit to his authority in every area of life. There is no area that is left out. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians we are to take every thought captive for Christ. That means every single area of life, every single area of intellection. Uh, intellectual activity comes under the authority of God. There's nothing that's left out. There is nothing that is neutral. Every thought is to be taken captive for Christ. Not most, not some. reason I make that point is as we continue our study of worship, we're getting into the area of singing and singing praises to God and music. And many people today want to argue or have attempted to argue the music is neutral. And yet, when you come across Paul's command to take every thought captive for Christ, that doesn't exclude any area of creation, including music. That every area of human activity is addressed by God and His Word in some way to give us that, that biblical framework, to think within that biblical framework of divine viewpoint about each and every area of life. So it doesn't matter whether you're an accountant, whether you're a chemist, whether you are uh, a musician, or whether you are a pastor, whether you're a history teacher, whether you're an English teacher, whether you're a homemaker, every thought has to be taken uh, captive for Christ, and that's part of worship. That is the individual part of worship as we submit to Him. And so we see as our core idea of worship that it is submission to God as the sovereign creator and expressing that authority orientation through gratitude, that's grace orientation, Praise, that is, we reflect upon and describe what he has done for us, songs that rehearse his person and work. Giving, because we are responding to his goodness to us. Uh, rituals of remembrance, baptism and the Lord's table, both focus on what has been done in the past. It's a reminder in baptism. It is a declaration of what happened in positional truth as we are baptized by means of the Holy Spirit, identified with Christ. The Lord's table, communion, is a reminder of his person and work and that we declare his death until he comes through the celebration of the Lord's table. And then the highest form of worship is, is learning uh, his word. We have been tracing the idea of corporate worship as we go through Scripture. Individual worship is between each individual and the Lord, and it is part of our day-to-day -day life. But there's an, this element of corporate worship that, for some reason, always, doesn't always get the attention it should. And unfortunately, we live in an era when, when it is given attention it is often misrepresented and misunderstood, and there isn't a consistent uh, development through the Scriptures. And we see in the first example of corporate worship in the Old Testament, the Song of Moses, which reflects upon the redemption of Israel from the slavery in Egypt. And he writes this incredible hymn, which reflects the fact that he has worked on this and it suggests, by means of its uh, tremendous uh, construction, I mean, it is, it's considered one of the uh, greatest examples of Hebrew poetry in all of Scripture. He didn't just sit down once he came out of the trough in the Red Sea. He didn't just sit down and just scribble this out in 15 or 20 minutes. It shows not only the uh, great skill with the language and with the whole 
uh, uh, genre of Hebrew poetry, but it shows that he's probably done this on more than one occasion. We can't, uh, we don't know what that would be, but it indicates just because of the skill with which it's written that this is something that he has been, uh, that he has done before. It shows the genius of Moses and that he was one of the most remarkable men in, in the Old Testament. But it also tells us something about the quality of the lyrics that we should be singing in hymns, hymns to God, that these are not shallow, superficial uh, words that are just spontaneously written, but they, there is thought that goes into this, and that's one of the things that we have observed. Then we looked at the Song of Deborah last week in Judges chapter 5, the same kind of thing, a, a new song written in response to the new uh, work of God as God uh, it, God intervened in the history of Israel and gave them victory over the uh, armies of Sisera and Jabin. We concluded by pointing out six things that we must note as we think about the songs we sing, the hymns we sing in praising God. First of all, that the lyrics are God-centered. They focus on what God did, or as we go through the Psalms, we'll see they focus on who God is and what he does. When the focus is on the individual, as it is in some of the laments, or in uh, a couple of the other Psalms, like Psalm 38, where David is focusing on his sinfulness, ultimately it's not in the context of wallowing in self-pity, but there is always the focal point on the hope and the reality of divine forgiveness and the uh, completeness, the sufficiency of God's grace. Second thing we note is that many of these hymns are hymns of joy, like the element of joy that was in the hymn we sang this morning, Unredeemed. It is a, a rejoicing together in the fact that God has done all of this for us. So that leads to the third point. It's a new song because it reflects a, a new, uh, either a new action of God in history that begun, be, becomes the basis for this hymn. We can think of some of the uh, hymns that we love in the scriptures uh, that have great stories behind them because of the uh, way in which God worked in the life of the, of, the, of the hymn writer. And so these hymns are the outgrowth of their experience, their spiritual life, but it also shows the deep reflection that has gone on in their own spiritual life. And I think that when some of these great hymn writers lived in the 1700s, 1800s, we go back to Isaac Watts in the 1600s, these were men who came out of a ecclesiastical heritage and culture where the average person in the church was so concerned about his own relationship to God, his own spiritual life, and was such a student of the Word that when they wrote... The, these these words for the hymns, it reflected this this in depth knowledge of God, knowledge of His Word, and correct doctrinal uh, understanding. And when you live in an era, as I think believe we do today, when the teaching in pulpits is shallow and superficial, then the spiritual life of those in the pew is going to be shallow and superficial. And so that which they write, that which they produce in art, in music, is going to be uh, shallow and uh, superficial as well. So we have little today, unfortunately, we have little today that is of tremendous value when compared with some of the hymns of bygone eras. And we'll get to a point where we do some uh, comparison and contrast as we develop our, our skills in thinking about these things. Uh, so we see the third point was that it was a new song. God intervened in history and new events. Fourth, the focus is not on the misery, the sorrow, the guilt of the individual or of Israel, but is focused on how God delivers. Fifth point thing that we observed was that it's well-crafted poetry. It is it is quality poetry. The words are good lyrics. It's good poetry. And that's something that is often missing from some of the... It's missing from some traditional hymns. It's really not that great of poetry. We don't sing them. Uh, it's also missing from contemporary choruses. And six, the theme 
of the song is to is to rehearse how God delivered his people. And so as these songs are sung again and again in the corporate work of Israel, it causes the people to go back and reflect upon what God has done in the past because God's work in the past is just as real today as if it had occurred yesterday. Even though it may be 2,000 or 4,000 years ago, it's just as real today as it was before. In terms of application, we saw that three things. Hymns should be theocentric. Second, the lyrics should be well-crafted. And third, the content should cause the singer to get beyond his own circumstances and to focus on the eternal realities of God, his person, and his work. So we that lays a groundwork, and then we come to the next stage in the development of corporate worship, which takes place under David. Uh, it takes place under David for... Uh, two reasons. Number one, it takes place under David because of the quality of David's own spiritual life and because of his genius and his ability. And it also takes place under David because during the period preceding David, there is such apostasy in the land. The whole period of the judges and the the cycles of of apostasy that there's no uh, cohesiveness really in the nation as as the period of the judges develops, and even though the United Kingdom begins under Saul, Saul, though a believer, pretty much ignores his own spiritual life as he gets into his reign. So there really isn't an emphasis on on God. There's not a theocentric focus in the theocratic kingdom. And so we come to the time in David's, as David comes to be, king where he is focused on God. He is theocentric in his thinking. He is a man after God's own heart despite his failings and his failures and his great sins. God gives him high praise by saying he is a man after God's own heart. God recognizes that that it may be true for many of us despite the fact that we have sins and flaws and failures as David did what drove David, what motivated David despite those those failings, is that he loved God above everything else. And so he is very concerned about the presence of God. How can the people live in permanent homes when the ark is just in a temporary shelter known as the tabernacle? It's just in sort of a divinely sanctioned uh, mobile home and has been moving around the country, has even been captured by the Philistines at one point, and then it was brought back by the Philistines because they really didn't like the effects of having a God in their presence. And that's always a very amusing uh, study. But they bring the ark back, and the ark ends up in Kiriath-Jerim. And that is seen in Second Samuel chapter 6, when David goes to Kiriath-Jerim to move the ark to Jerusalem. And while it is in Kiriath-Jerim, it has been taken care of for a period of 20 years by Abinadab, who is a Levitical priest. He consecrated his son, Eliezer, to watch over it. And this took place for, for 20 years. And that's described in 1 Samuel 7, 1 through 2. And that's really the last time we see any mention of the ark as you go through uh, 1 Samuel. Then in 2 Samuel 6, after David has conquered the Jebusites and has captured the uh, city of Jerusalem, and this is to be the capital of the United Kingdom. He then determines to move the ark from its temporary abode there in Kiriath-Jerim. And so there's, there's certain protocol that has to be followed, and the Levites prepare to move the ark, and this is described in Second Samuel chapter 6, uh, verse 6, where there is a failure. There is a one of the those who's transporting the ark is one of the um, uh, sons of another son of Abinadab named uh, Uzzah, and Uzzah and um, Eliezer and their they have a third brother are part of the Levitical group that's moving the ark, and as they're carrying they, they put the ark on a cart and the oxen are taking the uh, ark to Jerusalem, and hits a rock or a hole in the road and the uh, cart 
is uh, jostled and he thinks that he has to stabilize the ark. God doesn't need anyone to stabilize him. And he reaches out and he touches the ark and he is instantly killed by God. Now there's a lesson there for worship. And that is there's a right way to worship God and a wrong way to worship God. And this is not the first time that we've seen God take the life of a priest who violates the protocol of worship. Now, God doesn't act that way. He doesn't um, intervene that way in the church age. He has given us these principles in the past, though, that there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And you can't just, man should not generate out of his own emotion or his own soul, his own ideas of what is appropriate worship for God. The ultimate criterion for worship is not how it makes me feel, whether I feel like I've worshipped or not. The ultimate criterion is whether we meet the qualifications and the guidelines of scriptures. As Jesus will tell the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John 4, today we are to worship uh, God by means of the Spirit. That means filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit in fellowship with God. We are to worship Him by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. That is, the by means of the revelation of, of God in the completed canon of Scripture. Well, David became a little bit concerned there when the uh, Uzzah died, and so they halted the progress of the ark into Jerusalem. And for three months, they stored the ark at the house of a Levite named Obed-Edom. And this is described in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 11. And then David comes back to transport the ark uh, to Mount Zion. And there are a couple of psalms that describe this, Psalm 3, verse 4, uh, Psalm 9:11, some other psalms. But the main description for this uh, uh, transport is in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Excuse me, that should be um, described in 2 in, in, uh, Samuel chapter 6, uh, verses 12 and following. Then it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And that word is the Hebrew word that describes joy and rejoicing. And verse 13 we read, And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. So every time they had gone approximately ten feet, they were sacrificing uh, oxen and fatted sheep all the way into Jerusalem. And this would have taken time, and it would have called for the slaughter of large numbers of animals but it was to recognize uh, the fact that man cannot come in the presence of God without the shedding of blood. And the shedding of blood is a picture looking forward to the shedding of the blood of Christ on the cross. And that physical aspect, even though he did not bleed to death, that's a misnomer, the shedding of blood is simply uh, a metaphor for a violent kind of death. And the physical Part of Christ's death was a picture. The shedding of blood is just a picture of his spiritual substitutionary death when he died on the cross for our sins. But we see this aspect of worship taking place as they are taking the ark up onto the temple mount. And in verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all his might, and he's wearing a linen ephod. And as they go up, all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting or singing and with the sound of the trumpet. So there is music, there's the singing of hymns, and there is tremendous pomp and circumstance associated with taking the ark up onto, up, up to Mount Zion, up to Jerusalem in preparation for its eventual uh, permanent location in the temple, which will take place under Solomon. Now, while the ark is stored there, in Jerusalem, in the city of David. Remember, and we studied this at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 8, that Solomon is 
when after he constructs the temple, he brings the Levites out and they, they bring the ark up onto the temple mount from the city of David. So it is stored at the city of David. And while it is stored at the city of David, there is a development that occurs in relationship to corporate worship and music and singing. And David begins to organize choirs of Levites and musicians and training them to sing the hymns and the songs. And in First Chronicles 6, 31 to, uh, to 32, we see that these are the men whom David appointed over the service of song. Actually, that's a new, I think that's a New American Standard. Actually, it's these are the men whom David appointed over singing in the house of the Lord. So he appoints leaders over this whole music ministry that is going to take place in the temple. And in 1 Chronicles 6.32, we read they were ministering with music or they were singing, they were making music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now we remember the ark is in Jerusalem and the tabernacle itself, all the rest of the furniture is at Gibeon, just north of Jerusalem. And so these singers, these musicians, these Levitical priests who were divided up into, into as we will see, three basic groups, and they had 24 uh, courses of, uh, of, of musicians. And it's all important to see this because it shows tremendous organization. This isn't just spontaneous. So many people today think that, oh, worship has to be spontaneous. It just, just you, you don't plan for it. You just let the Spirit move and let it happen. And that's not at anything like we see here. This is regulated, it is planned, it's organized, it's structured, it's thought through, because that shows the way in which we honor God, not just by doing things on the spur of the moment. So they are ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they served in their office according to their Order. So David is going to structure them, and this last word served isn't the word we saw earlier for worship. It's, it's not a term for worship. It is a term to describe their ministry as priests and their service of God. And it's used in this context. It's used of servants. It's used in a secular context, but it's used in context related to the Levites to speak of their ritual uh, our Levitical service before the Lord. And we see it in passages such as Exodus 28:35, uh, 1 Kings 8:11, and also uh, in relation to the Levites in Numbers uh, 3, verse 6. Now, at this time, as they are preparing, they're organizing this, David is going to divide the singing music, the, 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 the whole dimension of singing and music into three basic groups. And he identifies three key leaders. They are mentioned in uh, first, the subsequent verses in First Chronicles chapter 6. Uh, this, the chapter of First Chronicles 6 is a genealogy related to the family of Levi. Chronicles is written after the Babylonian captivity and the purpose for the writing of Chronicles is to provide continuity between the post-exile and the pre-exile. The purpose is to connect the worship in the, temp- in the second temple, the Zerubbabel temple, back to the formats that were established by David. And so there is a, a sound biblical tradition here. And the reason I make that point is because what you hear in the chronological arrogance of contemporary uh, Christian worship is the idea that not only that new, the concept of a new song means that every generation needs to write hymns according to their own music, but that uh, it's somehow wrong to sing the songs and the hymns of past generations and that we always have to do something something new. And what we see in numerous places in the Old Testament, we'll see it with Hezekiah in Second Chronicles 29. We see it with the 
uh, with Ezra and Nehemiah in the in the fifth century when they return is that they go back to the same forms and structures and hymns of of David. They they don't try to generate new things for their new generate their their new uh, this new generation of of believers and try to make it uh, relevant in a contemporary sense. In fact, there's a great book out by Oz Guinness. It's about 120 pages long, called Prophetic. Time, uh, prophetic untimeliness, a critique of the idol of cultural relevance. A crit- think about that. A critique of the idol of cultural relevance. See, this is what drives so much in contemporary church practice today is that we have to be relevant. We have to somehow learn the the, the, the beat and the movement of the contemporary generation of teenagers and 20-somethings so that we can reach them. That if we don't put it in their forms and in their music and what they like, then we're going to lose the next generation. And uh, this is cultural relevance. And Oz Guinness has done a great job of critiquing this idol of cultural relevance and showing how that ultimately is destructive to spirituality and destructive uh, of the church. So David is going to establish the basis for worship. And he sets up these three groups under Heman, Asaph, and Ethan, and sometimes he's called Jeduthun. These are the three names, and they're not familiar to most of you, so let me give you a little background on each of them. They are Levites. They each represent a different son of Levi. Levi had three sons. He had one son, Kohath. He had another son, Gershon, with an N, not Gershom with an M. Uh, even in the scribes got that uh, shifted around a few times in scribal errors copying the text. Gershom with an M was Moses' son. Gershon with an N was one of Levi's three sons. And so these three groups, uh, these three clans, uh, the clan of Merari, the clan of Gershon, and the clan of Kohath are the three basic clans of the Levitical priests, and they are divided into various orders, and each clan is given different responsibilities in taking care of the furniture of the, of the uh, tabernacle, the transportation of the uh, tabernacle, packing, all of those different things that would be involved in moving the tabernacle through the wilderness. Uh, Heman is appointed as he's a musician and he's also called a seer. That means he also is, is, his ministry is related to prophecy. And I've pointed this out before that there's this connection between being a prophet and music. And it's only mentioned in about three passages as if we know what it means and it's never fully described. But we see indications of this with, with Deborah who's called the prophetess, Miriam, who's called the prophetess, and what they did was they wrote or sang hymns. And so there's an element of that word prophet that doesn't have anything to do with either A, prosecuting the law, or B, uh, foretelling the future, but has to do with the uh, writing and singing of music. So Heman is called a musician and a seer. He's a Levite. He's the son of Joel, and he is the grandson of the prophet Samuel. He is of the Levitical family of Kohathites, according to 1 Chronicles 6.33. He's appointed by David as one of the leaders in the temple singing and the training in music, according to 1 Chronicles 15.17 and 2 Chronicles 5.12, somewhere around 970 B.C., in preparation for the eventual construction of the temple by his son Solomon. Heman had 14 sons and three daughters who assisted their father in the chorus, which seems to indicate that uh, it's not just that the family can always expect every son or daughter to have musical talent, but that they were trained to function in this role. And for generation after generation, it is the descendants of each one of these men who carry on this responsibility. Now, we think that you can only be uh, carry out this if you have a great voice, but uh, as I've talked with uh, voice trainers, singing coaches, that unless you're completely tone deaf, anybody can be trained to sing. You may not be uh, able to sing a solo in church, but you can sing 
probably better than you ever think you could. And this congregation has just improved tremendously over the last two or three years as we have uh, learned the hymns that we're singing. And it's it's great to hear everyone sing. And we're not afraid to uh, sing anymore. Of course, it's good that we're not in that barn of uh, White Oak Baptist Church anymore. For those of you who are there, that just sort of absorbed all the sound. But Heman is training from generation to generation. They'll pass on these skills. It's something you uh, learn about music, both the playing of instruments and singing. And he also wrote the 88th Psalm. So he was also used of God the Holy Spirit to write uh, at least one psalm. Uh, Asaph is the second one that's mentioned. He was also appointed by David as one of the chief leaders in the music ministry of the of the temple. He was the son of, of Berechiah, who was a Levite and therefore a descendant of Gershon, Gershon being the son of Levi. So he is referred to in First Chronicles uh, 6 as a brother and that term brother can mean also a cousin or relative. It's a rather broad term, so he is not uh, Heman's brother of the same parents. He has a completely different genealogy, but he is a relative. He is a Levite. He was responsible for the percussion section in terms of the bronze symbols, and <clears throat> he was responsible for ministry at, at the temporary resting place of the tabernacle at Gibeon. He also is said to have ministered before the Ark of God in 1 Chronicles 16.5. He had four sons. He didn't have um, 14 sons like Heman did. He only had four. And they were also among those appointed to work with him in the great chorus that was developed by David uh, as part of the Levites. The sons of Asaph could be a term referring to literal progeny, or it could be a term related to those he trained in terms of a musical a guild down through the centuries, were prominent in temple worship, especially as singers, according to a number of different passages, such as First Chronicles 25, uh, 1 and following. They are mentioned in a variety of these passages, but Asaph is also known because he composed a number of psalms. He composed Psalm 50 as well as Psalms 73 through 83. So he was also used to write many of the songs used in the uh, temple worship. And then the third one mentioned is called in some passages Ethan and in other passages Jeduthun. It depends on which passage you look at, but you have the mention of Heman, Asaph, and Ethan in some passages, in Heman, Asaph, and Jeduthun, and others. So we believe that Ethan and Jeduthun were the same individual. He is a son of Kishi. He is a Levite from the family of Merari. So these are the, each of the clans of Levi are represented by a, a musical leader. And he is called in 1 Chronicles 35.15, the king's seer. So he also has this uh, prophetic role related to his his singing. So these three men are used by David to organize and train those who will sing in the worship of God. Now, the principle that we learn from that is that singing isn't just something that is an adjunct to worship. God spent a lot of time revealing to David, I mean, re excuse me, revealing to Moses all of the ritual and protocol related to the sacrificial system and the function of the priesthood in both Exodus and Leviticus and some in Numbers. And for many years I thought, well, what is it that generated this desire in David to organize uh, these choirs and to do this music? Because there doesn't seem to be any place in Scripture where you see God giving him any sort of detailed revelation. And as I was uh, doing this study, I discovered that in Chronicles it mentions the fact that uh, this was done according to the instructions of Nathan and Gad as God revealed it to them. And that's all it says. So there is unrecorded revelation from God uh, through Nathan the prophet, Gad the prophet, and through David 
for how to set all of this up. So it isn't something that's developed from David's own initiative, but it is according to a divine revelation. Now, as they are preparing to move the ark up, they compose several hymns related to this. Psalm 24, 7 and 8, uh, 7 through 10 rather, mentions this. And we read there, Lift up your heads, O ye gates. So it's personifying the gates of the city as the ark is going to be taken uh, up to the temple. Lift up your gates, your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of the armies. He is the King of glory. Selah. Then Psalm 47.5 reflects upon this as well. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord, with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. That relates to His role as Creator. Sing praises with understanding. See, we don't just slip into sort of a mindless thing and sing the familiar hymns. We are to sing them because the purpose of the words are to cause our thinking to focus on who God is and what He has done. The reason is 47.7, for God is the King of all the earth. This is our part of our responsibility. Now, another thing that we learn as, as we look at these passages related to the movement of the ark, in 2 Samuel 6, uh, verse 5, David is uh, using various musicians in this whole procession to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel are celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and symbols. And the word translated celebrate is shahach, meaning uh, to happiness or joy. It's related to Yitzhak, in the name of Isaac, laughter. Is that, it's, that worship is celebration of what God has done, and it's not just something that is restricted to, uh, you know, something that is rather somber or sober, but that there's a, a real sense of joy and a celebration because of all that God has done for us. And some of the instruments are mentioned here. The, the uh, lyre is a, some kind of a stringed instrument. We're not sure exactly what it looked like. We have examples from different cultures. Uh, the harp was a smaller lyre. It's unsure if a plectrum was used with it or not, or if it was just drummed with the fingers. The lyre's larger some kind of uh, uh, stringed instrument or harp. The uh, tambourine is simply some kind of a drum, and it's a frame with leather stretched over it and was used in so, as some sort of percussion instrument. And then it's translated here, castanets and cymbals. These are different instruments used uh, to create different, different sounds. Uh, they were made of metal. And uh, we think of how these instruments are used in modern contemporary music since uh, post-World War II, but that's not how they're used in every setting. These are common instruments in numerous cultures, and we see in a variety of cultures, you can think of a Japanese ritual, you can think of Chinese ritual, you can think of many different uh, ways in which these kinds of instruments are used, and they're not used in the kind of free-flowing uh, spontaneous, just bang the tambourine on your leg whenever you feel like it kind of way that we see in so many types of, of rock bands and, and uh, Christian chorus groups today. Uh, you can have all of these instruments in a very structured, organized manner. I remember when I was in high school uh, playing in both the band and the orchestra and it seems like the rowdy guys would always end up playing the drums because they all wanted to be Ringo Starr. And we would be trying to play some piece of classical music, and all of a sudden some rebellious 15-year-old uh, would just start uh, playing the drums however he wanted to. And he thought he was being cool, and 
other people, the kids laugh, but you know, it destroys the whole thing. There was the, the music already had the percussion written in, and you followed that, and it had a purpose, and it didn't dominate and uh, uh, dominate the music. So we have a ten- people have a tendency today to read into these instruments, uh, you know, electric guitars and keyboards and everything else. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, people use the instrument of the day, and they were using the instrument of their day. And there's nothing any more uh, holy or sanctified about an organ or an electronic keyboard or a guitar. It's how they're used and the mu- and how the music is played and the philosophy of music that uh, lies behind that and how that is used in the in the structure of of uh, worship. First Chronicles 15, we see a parallel passage to the Samuel uh, movement of the ark as David appoints Levites and their relatives with singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, uh, loud-sounding cymbals to raise sounds of joy. And if you read through the whole passage, it talks about how uh, all of this was organized, which is important. But towards the end, I just want to draw your attention to 1 Chronicles 15:22, which says that Hananiah, uh, chief of the Levites, was in charge of the singing and he gave instruction in singing because he was skillful. And the word there for skillful is a word that's used in other passages for discernment. He's capable of teaching. And so there was instruction, not just to the Levites, but also instruction to the people on how to sing. I wonder what kind of instruction Moses gave. He's got about two million Jews out there. They've just gone through the Red Sea, and now they're all going to sing this song that he, he wrote. And they're going to sing it antiphonally with the uh, women singing with Miriam. We're not given those details of how they organized that, how they rehearsed that, but they did. It wasn't just a cacophony. It was something that was glorious and something that was, was magnificent to hear. And we need to bring this kind of thinking to church when we think in corporate worship that the singing that we do is not something that is just sort of tacked on. It's something we do on Sunday morning. And when we go through the scriptures from the Old Testament passages all the way up to the New Testament, that singing is an integral part of corporate worship. Ephesians 5.18 mentions or commands that we are to be filled by means of the Spirit. The very next thing that is said is that we are, making, we are singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. That is the first result listed from the filling of the Spirit. Same thing is said with letting the Word of Christ dwell richly in your heart in Colossians 3.16. The first result mentioned is singing psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs. So singing, we, we come out of a tradition in Protestant churches sometimes where singing is just, well, we, we kind of do that on Sunday morning, but we're not sure why. And this is why. It is, it is an expression of our joy of our salvation and all that we have learned in in Christ. So as we go through these passages, we see that David organizes the choirs, organizes the musicians. Second Chronicles 29, uh, 25 down to 30, takes place in a period where there is a restoration of tabernacle worship under Hezekiah. His father was uh, quite evil and apostate, and when Hezekiah comes in, there is a major uh, overhaul, restoration of the temple. Things, the temple is cleansed, and he restores the temple worship. And in Second Chronicles 29:25, we are told how he uh, orders the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. And so there's the restoration of the uh, music and the worship there with Hezekiah. It's done again when they return uh, from the captivity in Babylon. So in conclusion, let's just note a couple of things about music in summary before we move on to later developments. First of all, music, like every other aspect of creation, began in the mind of God. Music isn't something man developed. It is something that was originally in the mind of God. There is no aspect of human knowledge that wasn't first foreknown in God's omniscience. Second thing we should note about music is that music preceded the creation of man and was an integral aspect of the worship of the angels. In Job 38, 
uh, verses 4 and in verse 7, when God is asking these questions to Job, uh, he says in verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And in verse 7 he says, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted, the word there for shouted also means singing, shouted for joy. So you had this heavenly chorus. Just as we see at the end of times in Revelation 4 and 5, at the beginning of the creation, you also have the angels singing for joy as God creates the heavens and the earth. Uh, so we see that music was an integral part of angelic worship before creation. It's an integral part of the worship in the temple. It will be an integral part of worship in the millennial kingdom. It's an integral part of worship in heavens in the future. It will be an integral part of worship in the uh, new heavens and new earth. So why are we to think that it's not an integral part of worship in the church age? And it should be, and we need to give it its uh, proper proper place. Now next time, I want to come back and go to the John 4 passage in Ephesians 5 and see the significance and the importance of, of worship for the believer in the church age. We'll also tie this together with uh, some contemporary analysis. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning to realize that uh, it is part of our priesthood to sing praises to you, to reflect upon who you are and what you have done, and, and do this in a way involving music. And this should be done in a way that reflects you as the creator of all things. It should be done in a way that is uh, reflective of the theology that is sung. It is done in a way to focus our attention not on uh, our circumstances, but on who you are and what you have done. Above all things, the message of the hymns, the Psalms of Scripture, is that you are our Savior, you are the one who delivers us, you are our Redeemer. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't need to join a church, make a bargain with God, make a vow, walk an aisle, get baptized, or any other thing in order to be saved. All you need to do is trust in Jesus Christ to believe that he died on the cross for your sins and that by believing in him, you have eternal life, that he paid the penalty, and that all you add to it is your faith, your trust. That's it. Father, we pray that you challenge each of us with our own understanding of what worship is and our own responsibility to worship you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.